A brand new interview is just a moment away, my friends, with uh, one of the most prolific documentary filmmakers of all time. But before we get to that, are you subscribed to Coming Up Next? It's really straightforward to do, and it's going to streamline your audio listening experience in 2019. My friends, all you have to do is go to comingupnext.com.au, select your listening platform, hit subscribe, and then, like magic, each and every week, the show is going to download for you automatically. Now, for some brand new content. It's a new week, it's a new year. How are you doing, my friends? How's 2019 treating you thus far? Thank you for uh, coming back for a new year of podcast rambles. I hope you enjoyed our little break. A uh, little retrospective of three of uh, my favourite interviews from last year. Um, if you haven't heard them, they're all available for you, as well as the entire archive of Coming Up Next podcast rambles over at comingupnext.com.au. And uh, and what a way to start a brand new year of, uh, of podcasts. My guest this week is one of the most influential people in, uh, in non-fiction in the world. He's had a career spanning uh, 25 plus years. Um, he's one of the, well, I guess, pioneers of the true crime uh, documentary genre. Uh, his his credits include films like Brothers Keeper, uh, the Paradise Lost trilogy, Some Kind of Monster, I Am Not Your Guru, uh, and he's got two uh, Ted Bundy projects coming out simultaneous, well, almost simultaneously. One's going to be hitting Netflix screens on the twenty fourth of January, uh, and it's called Conversations with a Killer. And that's in the true crime documentary genre. The other is a, is a fiction uh, scripted narrative piece, which is called uh, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, and is having its uh, its world premiere at Sundance. Um, that's starring Zac Efron as Ted Bundy. And uh, I feel incredibly lucky and incredibly privileged to welcome Joe to, uh, to coming up next to kick off this new year. So instead of uh, rambling further, um, why don't we just get into the interview? Uh, we speak about all the usual things. We, we dig into, uh, into Joe's early career through to these current films. So let's get into it. these two Ted Bundy projects that um, are both complete and they're both I guess kind of coincidentally premiering around the same sort of time it seems like a um, like a very very happy kind of coincidence I suppose how how did both of these projects come to you I guess yeah I mean it seems like some grand master plan on my part to you know, have two projects, one scripted, one unscripted come out at the same time, but it was really just very coincidental. And it, and I think it's fascinating because the two projects reflect well off of each other, but again, totally unplanned. Uh, around January of 2017, these audio tapes um, came into my life. Uh, they, you know, the author Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth, you know, thought that this this material would be interesting these hundred hours of audio recordings from Bundy after he was convicted and I took a listen and I thought they were terrific uh, I thought it was it would be a great you know there are many many Bundy movies documentaries books articles there's a lot of Bundy media so in order to take this on I felt like we needed something fresh and the audio tapes provided that fresh way in uh, specifically, you know, you enter into the mind of the killer and for the first time you really hear his thought process, which is bone chilling, but I thought was a was a unique way in to, to tell his story. And of course, the fact that it's his 30, it's the 30th anniversary of his execution on January 24th, it felt like a good time to, you know, explore the Bundy phenomenon and the reasons why we can get into in a, in a minute. But then several months into working on the documentary, my agent sent me the script for Extremely Wicked, uh, thinking that, he, you know, I might be interested in pursuing it because I had, for the last few months, been asking him, you know, to, to think about a good script for me to 
transition into narrative. You know, I had one one narrative experience two decades ago, but I've been spending the last 20 years doing so much true crime and other kinds of documentary and unscripted stuff that uh, I haven't really taken the time to, you know, pursue a scripted movie again, in part because, you know, the Blair Witch experience was horrendous for me, which we can also talk about. Um, But uh, so I read the script and, you know, it's bizarre that it was also about Bundy, but the script also had a very unique entry point, namely through the POV of his longtime girlfriend who only saw his good side. Um, And I thought this script really represented an opportunity to kind of turn the serial killer movie genre on its head because this movie is not a procedural where the police are tracking down some gruesome killer as the body count, you know, increases. We're really inside the head and the POV of his longtime girlfriend who thought he was a terrific guy. And by all accounts, he treated his girlfriend really well. And he was a wonderful surrogate father to, the daughter of this woman from a, you know, she had a child from another relationship. And whereas the unscripted piece is kind of inside the mind of a killer. uh, I look at the movie as this is inside the mind of somebody who believes somebody who's so trustworthy and believable. So as to give us, you know, a, a tangible way, a dramatized way to understand how is it that somebody like Bundy, you know, was believed to be innocent, was escaped uh, detection for so long because he was so credible in his in his denials. So the t- I think the two work really well together. But ironically, uh, when I first started the unscripted project with Netflix, the idea of premiering it on January twenty fourth or the thirtieth anniversary of his execution was not something we talked about initially. No, we we hadn't even quite made that calculation yet. Um, And similarly, the Bundy scripted movie, Extremely Wicked, came together so blindingly fast. It's it's shocking. You know, I read the script in April, decided I wanted to do it, uh, had a conversation with the producer of it, a guy named Michael Costigan, who's been trying to get the movie made for years. In fact, this movie has, you know, is on what's called the Hollywood blacklist, which is, a, you know, a list of scripts that people in Hollywood really like, but for some reason or other, they've had trouble getting it made. And in fact, I think Jodie Foster at one point was attached to direct a version of this script and another director was attached, but my agent just kind of remembered it after we had had a conversation and knew it was on the blacklist and sent it my way. Uh, and I thought it was terrific. I told the producer I thought it was terrific, gave the right take, I guess, when I spoke to the producer about how I would go about it. That was like the third week of April of 2017. And then um, at an agent's meeting at CAA, uh, my agent mentioned that I was starting to look for talent for this project. And Zach Efron's agent thought that Zach suggested, you know, Zach uh, for this role. And when I heard that suggestion, I thought it was brilliant because um, I think Zach's a terrific actor who hasn't really been given an opportunity to show the full range of his skills. Um, and I think in some ways this, you know, playing with his his persona as a teen heartthrob or a former teen heartthrob, actually he's still a teen heartthrob, you know, playing with that image uh, would be interesting for this particular character because, char- you know, Bundy charmed his victims to death, basically. Um, and convinced the world of his potential innocence because he was so charming. But when he, when I was told that Zach may want to do it, you know, I just imagine this movie would be shooting years from now because normally it takes years to get a movie set up. But I, so I read the script mid-April. By the end of April, Zach had signed on. They took it to Cannes a couple of weeks later, which, as you know, I'm sure you know, Cannes is not just a film festival, but it's like a major market for getting films set up. And Voltage Pictures signed on, and. You know, within five weeks of me having read the script for the first time, the movie was set up for production, which is insane in this business. And it was also supposed to have been shot in October of 2017. So the movie was supposed to come out in September, but because of talent avails, everything got pushed. So we started shooting this and at this time last year in 2018. Obviously, you can't plan on getting invited to Sundance, 
but the fact that we got invited to Sundance for the scripted movie and Netflix at a certain point realized January 24th is the perfect launch date for the series. Uh, you know, it all came together because Sundance is starts literally the, on the January, on January 25th, the, the day our Netflix series is launching and the 30th anniversary of Bundy's execution and my movie premieres, you know, uh, Saturday, the 26th at Sundance. So the stars kind of lined up for, for some reason, the universe has tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're the guy to tell Bundy's story, which, you know, doing it in both scripted and, and unscripted is, um, especially since this is my first movie in 20 years, a scripted movie. I, you know, I think, I don't, I can't think of another time that a filmmaker has tackled the same subject in both scripted and unscripted and doing it more or less uh, simultaneously. I mean, obviously I shot that when I was shooting the movie, I wasn't working on the documentary when I was shooting the documentary, I wasn't working on the movie, but over the last two years, both of these projects have, you know, been, you know, have been made when I wasn't working on the other, I was working on the other, if you know what I mean. So unusual set of circumstances. It is, uh, uh, it's pretty crazy to kind of, I guess, to consider that they've both sort of dovetailed at the same time. And yeah. I guess I wonder if, uh, if you kind of reflect back over, you know, 20 plus year um, or 30 year career um, and kind of consider how you've arrived at, uh, at, at this point where, as you say, not many filmmakers get to sort of tackle the same subject matter in, in two similar but very different uh, uh, mediums. Um, I, one thing I like to speak with people about on the show is whether or not they remember the, f the very first time that they did, uh, you know, what they do now, what they've made a career out of, you know, whether it's acting or writing or, or, mm. um, or directing. So uh, you, you grew up in, uh, in Bridgeport, didn't you? Uh, well, I, I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but wasn't there very long. I ended up in um, New Jersey for another half year. My father was a salesman, so we traveled a bit, but then we ended up in, um, Northern Westchester by the time I was in first grade, which is an hour North of Manhattan. And that's where I spent my childhood. What was your, I guess, first experience of, uh, entertaining work, you know, make, making something or performing or something in that sort of space? You know, honestly, I mean, I'd love to tell you that I ran around with eight millimeter cameras and made movies and was dying to be a movie maker. That interest came quite late in my life. Um, when I went to college, I was actually a language major and, you know, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do other than live in Europe <laughs> and get paid to speak languages. And that was my career goal. And I spoke, you know, a number of languages and I was especially good at German. And because I spoke fluent German and a few other languages, I literally stumbled upon an opportunity to go work for a big New York advertising agency called Ogilvy and Mather, which has offices all around the world. And I was hired to be in their Frankfurt office and they were just looking for a young person, youngish person willing to travel who spoke multiple languages, who could coordinate some pan European shoots for their American clients advertising in Europe because in the mid 80s when I got the job there was kind of this theory that I think is no longer functional about you know kind of doing taking the same idea of a commercial you know like a dinner a couple having a dinner or whatever for the American Express card and keeping the same concept but just swapping out national cast though so a shoot would be let's okay let's do the Spanish version let's do the Italian version, but basically the same commercial. Um, of course, that reduces culture to the lowest common denominator. So I don't think they really continued that for very long, but it was a way of saving money um, and having a consistency of a campaign. And I had a very low level job of coordinating these shoots. And that's where, you know, the first time I was on a TV commercial set was in Europe, working for Ogilvy and Mather on a TV commercial shoot. And that's kind of where the light bulb went off. It's also when, um, uh, you know, I was kind of craving some American culture and I walked into um, a movie theater that was in Frankfurt, Germany, that was playing uh, Jim Jarmusch's uh, Stranger 
than Paradise. And that movie just totally captivated me. And the combination of being around TV commercials and seeing that movie, I said to myself, uh, somehow I have to get into film. My And wasn't even looking to be a documentarian. That's the whole fascinating thing for me about having spent the last 30 years doing what I do or 25 years, whatever it is. You know, I migrated. I realized, you know, I got to a certain point in advertising in Germany that I felt if I didn't leave soon, I would just end up being, you know, an advertising person in Europe, and which wasn't a bad career. Uh, but I just felt like if I waited too long, I'd be too making too much money and too concerned about making a change. And so I kind of um, migrated my way back to New York, was working for Ogilvy and Mather in their New York office. And we hired to do some unscripted television commercials of the Maisel brothers, the famed documentarians of Gimme Shelter and Grey Gardens, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and at the time, real people television commercials were not as popular as they became and so the idea of hiring documentarians to shoot unscripted commercials was kind of new. They really enjoyed the experience, wanted more commercial work. And so one day, you know, David Mazels, who's one of the brothers who actually died quite a few years ago, Albert died a few years ago, but David Mazels unfortunately died young of a heart attack in uh, like 1987. Um, but in 1985, David and I in particular kind of hit it off and they were looking to do more commercial work. And I was looking to get, go to the other side of the table and be in film. Uh, and it wasn't out of a particular love of documentary, which I readily admit it, it was like an opportunity. So I went over there and Mais and worked for the Maisel brothers for five years as kind of their executive producer, getting them commercial work and other kinds of work. And that I used that as my film school but I think everything happens for a reason because I think I was particularly well suited for uh, unscripted documentary in the vein that they do, you know, the cinema verite. I fell in love with it. I met there <clears throat> at Maisel's, I met Bruce Sanofsky, who was their editor mainly for commercials. Um, I decided to try to make a short film myself about New York City cab drivers, which he edited that collaboration felt really good. So he and I started, by now David Maisels had passed away and Albert, you know, understandably was kind of for a while a little, you know, lost in terms of, you know, his direction in verite filmmaking. And so Bruce and I, you know, felt like we wanted to make a film in the Maisels tr tradition. And so we spent a year looking for a story that we could follow in the present tense, which today sounds so basic. But, you know, back then, you know, before video, uh, by the time you buy a roll of 16 millimeter film, which was, you know, process it, shoot it, process it and look at it a week later on your flatbed after it's been processed at a lab. And as well as processing the separate soundtrack, which, you know, you would record on quarter inch Nagra tape and then it'd have to be transferred to 16 mag track that you would then look at it on a, um, you know, a flatbed or a Steenbeck or, you know, there was no such thing as computer editing. So every 10 minutes that you shot and looked at a week later costs you $400 as opposed to today, you know, a camera is relatively inexpensive and you shoot on a card and there's no cost to acquiring a medium. So the idea of following a story in the present tense, for which you don't know what the outcome is, which is so common today. It's the most commonplace thing you can imagine. Um, back then it was a big decision. You, you jumped out a window and hoped there was a mattress on the other side to catch you and shooting on, you know, shooting 16 millimeter, which, uh, you know, we had the dream of making brothers keeper, which was our first collaboration, you know, for the movie theater. And if you wanted to have a documentary, projected in a movie theater back in 1990, you had to originate, you had to shoot on celluloid because there was no such thing as tape to film transfer yet. It was still a few years away. Um, so um, Bruce and I spent a year looking for a story that we thought we could invest what limited funds we had. You know, we discussed many stories and then one day we each came running into the Maisel's office clutching the New York Times and remember this is before the internet clutching the New York Times because there was a story in you know uh, on on the back of the metro section uh, about 
you know, this elderly dairy farming brother who had just been arrested for the murder of his, you know, of his brother and the police thought he was guilty and the town thought he was innocent. And we said, aha, that could be our Maisel style cinema verite film. And we just started making the movie. Um, so, and then I've, it's been a love affair with nonfiction ever since, but you know, I find, you know, being considered one of the more significant people in the field, I find it very ironic that as a child, I never dreamt of being a filmmaker. Uh, and, uh, you know, once I was in the advertising business, I was just really looking to get into the door, you know, in any form uh, of the production side of the business. And just because we happened to be shooting real people, American Express commercials at the time, I was really looking for an opportunity. That's the reason I landed in documentary. So, you know, uh, embrace, uh, embrace, you know, happenstance, uh, you know, has been kind of the, kind of the, rule of my life you know yeah i can uh, i can relate on one level i i went to film school um and had no uh, kind of desire to work in in uh, in non-fiction um, but the first sort of big job that i got when i came out of film school was to go and shoot some non-fiction stuff and uh, and produce that as well and now i'm you know about Eight or so years into working, sort of exclusively in uh, in in nonfiction, just because that so that thread came my way, and and I just said sure. Yeah, no, no, it's provided me, it's provided with me with an amazing life. I feel like I've never left school in the best of ways, and whether you're dropping in to somebody's life for a day, a week, a year, three years, like with Metallica, twenty years, like with the West Memphis Three. Um, you get, you know, because you have a camera, you get to, and even if it's under the most, you know, atrocious conditions, you're interacting with people you would normally never get to meet. And I feel like every film I've done kind of has given me a lesson in life that, you know, has really been invaluable. You mentioned that you felt as though you had the right kind of, uh, I guess, personality type or, or attributes to enter into a career. Um, as a as a verite uh, documentary filmmaker, what what uh, what were those or are those kind of attributes that you felt uh, really put you in in that position? I have a bit of ADD and have a hard time sitting down and figuring stuff out in advance and filming reality as it's unfolding forces you to be in the present, like nothing else. So I enjoy that. I have a deep belief in humanity. Uh, but I also understand that humanity is a struggle between good and evil. And I feel like documentary is an opportunity to, um, understand the human condition. And, uh, also, uh, I didn't feel this at first with Brothers Keeper. Brothers Keeper was purely a storytelling experience, a cinematic experience. But by the time we saw the three guys falsely convicted on Paradise Lost, the the advocacy gene woke up in me. And, and that's when I realized that there's a reason I'm doing this because, you know, just being an artist slash storyteller is, of course, a wonderful thing. But having a social justice component to it and trying to actually help people uh, was very fulfilling to me. Um, I think, and again, it's awkward talking about yourself, <laughs> but you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I had a tough childhood, which I don't want to get into the details of which, but, but um, suffice it to say it forged in me instead of a bitterness, instead of, it forged in me an empathy towards other people. And I feel like in documentary in particular, um, that, that ability to be empathetic with other people is really your stock and trade, getting people to be comfortable. Um, you know, you can be unempathetic as a person, as a feature film director. I mean, there's all sorts of people and different styles to feature film directing, of course. And I'm not saying that people who direct movies aren't empathetic, but documentary in particular requires a certain empathy 
that people feel so that they open up to you and trust you with their story. And I feel like I'm that person. Um, you know, I think all of those things kind of congealed in a good way to make me realize that, um, you know, this was an interesting career for me. And what do you, what was your process, I guess, when you did go to make Brothers Keeper? I mean, um, you, you sort of, you talked about how you identified what the story was. Um, but was there something, were you specifically looking for a true crime story? And, and, and I guess how is your process or how do you feel your process has evolved, you know, from Brothers Keeper mm. through Paradise Lost, some kind of monster, um, even into um, conversations with a killer? Um, all good questions. Um, I don't think we were looking for a crime story in particular, but we were looking for a story, you know, you have to remember, you know, and of course there's exceptions to every rule and your listeners will, I'm sure think of films and that happened in the eighties and say, well, you're wrong. What about that? What about that? There's, you know, there's exceptions to every rule, but you know, the, the eighties was not a great time for cinema verite filmmaking. This amazing, thing that happened in part because of the technical achievement of figuring out how to shoot sync sound in the 60s led to this philosophy of cinema verite and there was all these great classics of cinema verite in the 60s and a number of great films in the 70s in the 80s you know documentary was moving more towards this talking head pbs style thing and so we were looking for a film um, and again, we weren't the only ones. Um, and there was a lot of innovation in documentary in the late 80s. I mean, Errol Morris, of course, Thin Blue Line, groundbreaking film, but he's not a verite filmmaker. He was, he's a very highly stylized and he kind of, you know, um, reinvented or he would say he invented, you know, the clever use of recreations. Um, you know, Roger and me, you know, Michael Moore was kind of the, the, the creator or the popularizer of, you know, filmmaker as on camera curmudgeon and seeker of justice, um, you know, for really advocating and an issue, you know, all that was happening around the time other filmmakers like ourselves were, you know, pushing the documentary form. I mean, you know, today, almost everything I'm saying, people say, well, what are you talking about? Documentaries were always that way, but they really weren't. Um, and I think what we were looking for is to, you know, take what the cinema verite filmmakers did, which was this amazing belief in reality and following a story as it's unfolding and capture human drama. That's what, that's what Penny Baker, Maisels, Wiseman, all those guys were, were, they, they, invented the technology and they also invented the philosophy that you can, you know, um, these ambiguous human portraits, a documentary didn't have to be about a specific subject with a, with a specific point of view to teach you something. You could just have these ambiguous human character portraits. But I think one of the fallacies of what those great amazing filmmakers uh, did and whose shoulders we stand on, obviously and particularly the Maisel's brothers always declared that there was no such thing as a director on their movies, that they were capturing objective reality. And I, that always, you know, to me, all filmmaking is incredibly subjective. Um, a film is 10,000 decisions that are all very subjective, where you put the camera, what you leave on the editing room floor. So for me, you're capturing the emotional truthfulness of something, not the literal objective truth of something. The objective truth of Paradise Lost is somebody sitting through six weeks of trial. The emotional truth of Paradise Lost is trusting the filmmaker to take six weeks of trial and condense it down to about 60 minutes of trial that appears in the documentary. So I felt liberated by the idea that no, cinema verite is not, you know, it, it, making cinema verite documentaries doesn't mean you're capturing the objective truth. And yes, there are directors on the films. And so what we attempted to do with Brothers Keeper, which is what we thought about prior to picking the subject, is we really wanted to create a documentary specifically for the movie theater at a time when documentaries in the movie theaters were quite rare and new. 
Um, again, there's exceptions to every rule, but you know, it was not the way it is that it's not the way it became just a few years later in the nineties. And we were looking to take, we were looking to create movies that had all the documentaries that had all the dramatic structure and all the techniques that good dramatic scripted films had, um, things like brothers keeper has a beautiful, um, original score that's highly emotive. And at the time the movie was criticized for that. Like you, you know, we were told by the then latest crop of documentarians, not the latest crop. We were told by, you know, the vanguard of documentarians at the time, certain people criticized us for having, um, you know, used an original music score, uh, because that's not truthful because you're manipulating emotions. You know, the film brothers keeper, I think pushed the envelope on what, a documentary could be by, you know, consciously looking for a story that had natural dramatic structure to it and selectively withholding information until the right dramatic moment. And that is why we gravitated towards a trial because, you know, we had a, with a trial, you know, you're going to have a clear beginning, middle and an end. And you're going to have this classic drama of two, you know, a protagonist and an antagonist, each vying for the truth and by the end of the film, somebody is deeply changed. And that was a conscious attempt to imbue a documentary with those kinds of narrative qualities. doesn't mean you can make things up or put words in people's mouths or overly manipulate chronology. There are certain rules as a documentarian you still have to abide by. But Brothers Keeper was one of the earliest documentaries to have a really evocative opening title sequence. You know, Brothers Keeper raised more questions than it answered, which a lot of people were thrown at the time by like, well, what's your position? Did he kill him or not? And the whole point of the film was for people to go off and debate because we can't tell you the truth to that. That was a novel position for a documentary to be this ambiguous. Um, and it also had a shoot, shooting style that was very evocative. So I think that's what we were looking to do. And I think it informed the selection of Brothers Keeper. And I think we carried that into you know, Paradise Lost, and I've carried that into everything I've, I've done since then. You know, I think, um, you know, a documentary can raise questions without answering them and can take you into worlds where it's, there's no, there's no clear cut answer about how you should view the film. Um, and I think sometimes our films are a little, uh, troubling for some people because they want a clear answer and we don't always provide that you know, in our films. We're going to get back to the interview in just one second, my friends. But since the new year is upon us, I wanted to ask you a pertinent question. Are you looking to make 2019 a year where you're far more organized? Do you feel like all of your thoughts are kind of, you know, circling around your head and you're not really sure what to do with them? You're not really sure how to move forward. You've tried all the apps, you've tried all the planners, all the systems, nothing's really worked. Well, there's this guy out there whose name is Ryder Carroll, and Ryder's come up with this amazing system called the Bullet Journal. The Bullet Journal combines all the elements of a wish list, a to-do list, and a diary, and I can tell you, it's going to change the way that you organize your life. Through tracking your past, ordering your present, and planning for your future, the Bullet Journal really helps you to identify what matters and set goals accordingly. So, if you're looking to get 2019 going off on the right foot, check out this essential guide to tracking your past, organizing your present, and planning for your future. For all the information and to start planning your future today, hit up bulletjournal.com. Now, let's get back to the interview. When you come to making a film like Some Kind of Monster, which is, you know, I guess in a similar vein to Brothers Keeper, um, is playing out before the camera, but um, take it by contrast to conversations with a killer, which is a kind of, uh, I guess, retrospective or something that you're piecing together. What's the, um, I guess the kind of scripting and then, and then editing process like in contrast between the two? Um, that's a good question. I mean, they are two very different animals. Um, and I think a lot of my television work, my series work is, you know, some of it is verite and some of it is historical like this. You know, I also did a series for the Sundance channel recently, you know, kind of examining um, the history and the impact of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and examining the real crime uh, that Capote wrote about in his book and seeing where the differences are. And so, you know, that process is obviously you make the film in the editing room, you start 
researching and looking at your archival footage, you start piecing the film together and then you go out and do inter interviews based on what you've learned. And once, and the interviews obviously sometimes send you in a different direction and then you complete the editorial process. Um, so uh, the film starts and ends in the editing room with a film like some kind of monster and all of the cinema verite work of following a story as it's unfolding uh, in the present tense. It's, it's a journey of discovering what the story is and capturing it before you even think about editing it. And it's in fact, with something like conversations with the killer, you know, you have to have some kind of preconceived idea of the story you want to tell so that you can, you know, figure out how to edit things together and it informs your interviews, but with a verite story, um, I think it's the, the lesson I learned, particularly on Paradise Lost, is that you can't lock into a preconceived idea of what the story is that you're telling, because sometimes you'll miss the story altogether. So it's really a journey of discovery. I mean, on Paradise Lost, originally, um, we were sent an article by Sheila Nevins at HBO, who, you know, was one of the leading and pioneering people in document in commissioning documentaries. Um, and she, you know, sent us this New York times article where the went, you know, th these three teenagers in West Memphis, Arkansas had just been arrested for these devil worshiping murders that the, you know, all the media down there thought they were definitively guilty. Um, that on a scale of one to 10, the police were saying the evidence was an 11, they printed a confession in the newspaper. By all accounts, these guys were undoubtedly guilty of this grisly crime of murdering three eight-year-olds and sacrificing them to the devil in this satanic ritual worship ceremony. Um, HBO wanted us to make a film about that, about how kids kill kids. Why would kids do this? How have kids become so disaffected that they could do such a horrible thing? And we went down to rural Arkansas thinking we were making a film about that. You know, we arrived a week after the arrest. Um, we embedded in the community for about nine months prior to the trial. Um, we spent the first three months really getting to know the families of the victims and, and thinking we were telling their story and telling the story of how something so horrendous could happen. Um, and it took us months to negotiate access to the guys in prison. Uh, they were all, in jail awaiting the trial. Um, but when we, when I did those first series of, um, interviews, when we, Bruce and I did those first series of interviews with the West Memphis three, of course they weren't called the West Memphis three back then. They were just three rotten teenagers who had done this horrendous crime. You know, Bruce and I, after those interviews just felt like one plus one was not equaling two, that something was amiss. Um, in particular, I remember staring at, at Jason Baldwin's wrist. You know, he had, he had the scrawniest, smallest wrist of a little kid I'd ever seen. And if you believed the p police's story, this is the guy who wielded a giant serrated hunting knife to castrate one of the victims. And I looked at his little arms and his little wrist and listened to him defend himself and tell me he was innocent and he struck me as very credible and I couldn't imagine him doing that. It's, you know, and certainly I don't make my decisions about somebody's guilt or innocence on one conversation, but something didn't feel right. And so, um, you know, we told HBO that we think the wrong people might have been arrested and that was our feeling almost afraid that HBO was going to cancel the project because they wanted a kids killing kids project. But to Sheila's credit, she said, Oh, that sounds more interesting if they, if they have the wrong people. So we stuck with it. And the lesson I drew from that is if, if we had gone down there with the mission in mind to make a film about kids killing kids, and we were looking for everything to confirm that, you know, that, that, that idea, we'd miss the whole story that really happened, which then became, you know, life's work. It's like, uh, I guess it's like, as you say, it's, it's following that sort of happenstance, uh, intuitive 
feeling that you mentioned before the you know yeah identifying that that wait there's actually something uh, bigger than bigger than what we'd initially thought here which seems to be a thread through a number of your projects um yes remaining open to what the real story is you know originally when whitey bulger for example you know was being brought to trial finally for all of his crimes after being on the lam for 16 years what what we discovered was that the reason that he was allegedly being prosecuted that he was a an informant for the you know the FBI uh in Boston in order to bring down the Italian mafia uh there was a lot of holes in that story and uh so instead of making a film about how bad Whitey was I realized the opportunity on that film was to explore kind of this um deal with the devil uh that law enforcement had made with Whitey um and the impact on all of the victims of Whitey uh because he was allowed to murder on the streets of South Boston for far too long with the full knowledge and complicity of a, of some members of American law enforcement um so it's really you know it's 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 I've never made a film that starts off one way and doesn't become something else I mean even the Metallica film you know, and again, if you lock into what you think the film should be, then you miss the big opportunity. I mean, honestly, the Metallica film started off as a promotional film. Those guys were going into the studio for the first time in five years. Uh, we had become friends with them because they lent us their music for free. We were the first movie that ever used or documentary. Well, we were the first movie that including doc, documentary and script. We were the first film that they had ever given music to for Paradise Lost because uh, they believed in the mission because Metallica music was actually introduced into the trial. The lyrics of Metallica songs were actually introduced to the, into the trial in Paradise Lost as evidence these guys were, you know, satanic worshipers because of the kind of music they listened to, which is so offensive on so many levels um, that we brought it to their attention and we said, hey, look, heavy metal music is on trial as much as these kids and they they, you know, felt that having their, they agreed with us that having their music in the film was essential. So they gave us all, you know, a lot of Metallica music, you know, could have charged us lots of money, but gave it to us for free and became supporters of the West Memphis three. That relationship just led to a friendship. And when they were going into the studio to record their first record in a few years, they really only had, you know, wanted us to, you know, go cover them going into the studio so that they would, this is, you know, this is at a time when physical CDs were still being sold and the music industry was trying to tamp down Napster and these other, these other digital uh, platforms that were nipping at their heels, but the business was still pretty strong of selling CDs. And so they wanted a little B roll to slap on the back of the record, uh, you know, the CD so that they could give a little value add. So the Metallica film just started out as something, you know, quite basic like that. But we saw the band was fraying and about to blow up. And we just, because we were at, you know, right place, right time, had a relationship, um, we persevered and turned it into, you know, an extraordinary film about a band in crisis. But it didn't start out that way. I don't think I've ever started a film that hasn't turned out into something much more meaningful and deeper than I expected. At what point did you speak to them? Because obviously there's a lot of drama that happens. I mean, it's Some Kind of Monster is one of my favorite uh, docs and I've been a huge Metallica fan most of my life. And this was such a pivotal moment in terms of, you know, the bass player Jason Newstead leaving the band and James uh, going into rehab as well as the whole Napster battle, you know, giving Metallica a kind of relatively negative perception to mainstream. Um, how did you kind of approach them to say, well, actually, we've got something a bit bigger here because it could have been quite, I guess, quite a vulnerable position for them to put themselves in? Um, you know, I got to give a lot of credit to Lars. Um, I mean, really, the I gave you the short version of the story. The real version of the story is that, um, you know, I landed in San Francisco. 
Bruce and I had actually kind of broken up as a filmmaking partnership because, you know, we had growing pains. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and I was just kind of doing this gig, you know, uh, actually as a reaction to the dismal reaction that people had to Blair Witch 2, which was a very painful experience. And, you know, I picked up the phone and called Lars and I said, hey, you, you guys once talked about, you know, doing doing something promotional and I see you are going into the studio and he said, yeah, call the record label Electra and why don't you come out to San Francisco? And I landed in San Francisco, called him up and he said, Oh, I forgot to tell you, Jason just quit the band. I'm not sure the record's even happening. And so I sat with Lars and I said, well, you know, let me see where this goes. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, so then I heard they were hiring this performance coach <clears throat> and I said to Lars, look, I'm here. I'm with cameras. I'm with a camera. Why don't, why don't I just film it and see what happens? And the first time I was in that room, it was a suite at the Ritz Carlton that they were having their first session. And I'm sitting there with the camera, uh, you know, filming these guys, these icons of metal, like trying to relate to one another, um, having this existential crisis in their life, you know, this creative and existential crisis of, you know, their whole image was built on sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and they no longer really wanted to do all that, and they just wanted to make music, and there was years of tension between these guys. Uh, you know, I felt like, wow, it's amazing that the universe has put me in this place right now, because I, too, am going through this horrible existential crisis, having flamed out on Blair Witch 2, having broken up with my partner, probably in not a great way. Cause I, you know, he and I weren't getting along, but I was the driver of the breakup and, and I went off and did this movie that then just belly flopped. So I was feeling quite tender and, you know, just sitting there witnessing, like I didn't even think there was necessarily going to be a film. I just felt like because I had a camera and I was witness to this, this dialogue between these guys, uh, I felt, you know, it was deeply speaking to me. And, if, you know, so I, I, encouraged Lars that, you know, let's keep filming. Lars was open to it because he felt like the presence of the camera was actually, um, it was like a truth serum. These guys were actually able to talk to each other through the cameras. And he doesn't think the therapy would have worked as well if it wasn't being filmed. But nobody, nobody was understanding or even pressuring what this was going to be, whether it was just going to be banned film that they would sit on or whether it was going to turn into a film. I mean, it just, it just didn't have an agenda, which is why I think it, it worked and why it feels so authentic. And by the second session, I realized that I had, you know, broken up with Bruce probably in, um, you know, professionally broken up, you know, it's not like we were a couple, but we were a filmmaking team. And, um, you know, I invited him to participate in the film, uh, because he, he, you know, we had been joined at the hip for our first couple of ventures. And, you know, I felt like I needed, you know, one of the reasons we ended up parting ways is I felt like I needed to not be joined at the hip with somebody in order to continue with my career. That, that idea scared me. Um, so I invited him to be part of the Metallica film before we even knew what it was. And both of us really got a lot out of those therapy sessions ourselves. I mean, we would go back at night, uh, you know, to our hotel room and talk about our own relationship. And it was very healing and healthy for us. Um, and we got to a really good place where we could continue to collaborate, but not be joined at the hip where each, each of us felt like, okay, you can, each of us can have our own career and we don't always have to do things together. Those were some of the issues that plagued us that led to our breakup. And it was very healthy in the same way. I think this whole process for the band was very healthy for whatever reason, the fact that people they trusted were documenting these conversations made the conversations more authentic to them. Um, so I think the filming enabled the therapy and the therapy enabled the band to stay together. So nobody really questioned for a while, what are we doing? Why is there a film? And then James decided to leave and really go into rehab. And I think all the th therapy made him realize he had to deal with his addictions. Um, so when he came back, from a nine-month hiatus, and you see it in the film, he was a little quizzical and concerned about what are we doing, what's this film, and why. And we all sat down and had a meeting and talked about it, and we showed him some footage, and we explained what we thought, why we thought this would be a good film and a good document for the band. Um, and 
at one point, you know, we made it clear to him that, however, we're not going to do a puff piece or, you know, have limited access. Either we have to do it the right way. And I think I even, I haven't seen the film in so long. I think we posed that question or that thought in the film. And, you know, one of the options was to not make the film. You know, we wanted to let them know that, you know, we're down with this, but the only way to do it is the right way, which is just let it, you know, trust the process and let it happen. And for a band with a lot, you know, a huge following and a lot on the line and in a very, you know, metal bands in particular are very, you know, have an image and, and the music business is very image conscious. So it was incredibly brave for them to just let it all hang out like that. But I think it goes back to the fact that nobody really had an agenda with the film. We didn't know where it was heading. It, it was just everyone wanted to be there for a reason, you know, and it was, you know, everyone, it was a healing, the, the movie and the therapy and, you know, it was a very healing process for everybody. And I think you feel that in the movie. And you did a kind of 10 year retrospective, uh, I guess, five years ago now as well. You know, that was, that was, um, they were headed to Toronto with uh, the you know the premiere of uh, Through the Never, uh, their concert film, and it just seemed like a good time to reflect back on all that. Um, that was that was fun. I mean, the the downside to that is that by then Bruce was getting very sick and he couldn't participate in that film, and you know he you know as you know he passed away early in life, and uh, you know so I'm glad we had I'm glad the Metallica film gave us that experience of coming back together as collaborators for a number of projects. Yeah, I could imagine that would have been quite a fulfilling outcome. Yeah. And now you've, uh, you've cast James in, uh, in Extremely Wicked as well. Yeah, you know, um, James and I have had, it's not like we're bosom buddies, but, you know, we've been together at a few things. And, at, you, know, La- you know, Lars got remarried, you know, I think five or six years ago. And at Lars's wedding, you know, we had a conversation that was a repeat of a conversation I've had with him several times. I think James has this incredible presence. Uh, obviously, you know, when he walks on stage, there's just an aura about him. But you feel that from him when he's not on stage. He just has this incredible, I think, charisma and this voice. Uh, the, you know, his voice is very commanding. And I just thought, I said, man, you should like be thinking about, you know, if you ever want to do voiceovers for one of my docs, I think you have an amazing voice or, you know, I, you know, I think you should, you should consider acting. I mean, who am I to tell you that? But anyway, so when this opportunity, you know, when the film came along, um, I was, you know, not that I want to, I don't believe you have to cast people who look like the role, but I always take a look at what people actually look like. And I think people in Extremely Wicked, when people see it, you know, Zach's, you know, Zach's similarity to Bundy is especially with a little bit of help, you know, on hair and stuff in the film is pretty extraordinary. By the same token, you know, Hetfield plays this guy, Officer Hayward, Bob Hayward, a Utah patrolman who was the first to pull Bundy over in a routine traffic stop. He didn't realize he had Bundy until, you know, deep into it and if you look at photos of the real officer hayward uh if james did not work out and was not as fit as he is and a little older and and puffed out a little bit uh you would think that there's an uncanny uh, resemblance and so that's what initially what gave me the idea was like oh my god that looks like james hetfield and then i said to myself Oh my God, that would be amazing because it's a small enough role that, you know, what wouldn't be a big commitment for him because these guys were on tour and also just maybe be too intimidating for it to be a big role. Um, So I, you know, called him up and I said, Hey, uh, what do you think of this? And sent him the script. And uh, he said, yes. So it was a thrill. I mean, believe me, it was a thrill for everybody when James Hetfield was on set. (laughs) Uh, you know, a lot of metal fans in my crew on Extremely Wicked. <laughs> so we kind of touched on throughout this, the, you know, you've had this 25 plus year career as a, as a leading voice in, in nonfiction. So I'd love to get your take on this kind of rise, not only in the true crime doc uh, genre, but I guess particularly in the, you know, in 2018, there was quite a remarkable upturn in 
verite film in cinema and you know with films like yeah. the identical strangers and won't you be my neighbor and free solo and the kind of numbers that they were doing in the box office i'd love to sort of get your take on why you think there is this sort of boom happening at the moment with with verite docs well in general i mean it's an amazing time to be a content creator um you know, this explosion in Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, all these online platforms, which can now go for a global audience, has just created a tremendous increase in the volume and quality of production of all kinds. But documentary and unscripted has really benefited from that disproportionately because I think people are create, craving real stories. You know, as Hollywood continues to gravitate towards huge comic book Marvel blockbuster event kind of things, the small quote unquote indie movie, the kind that the original Miramax used to make films like the crying game or any number of really cool, edgy adult films. And I don't mean adult, like in the you know, pornography, I mean like films for intelligent people. Uh, that aren't big blockbuster comic book stories. Um, those, though, that genre is severely threatened in the cinema in particular. And I think Into the Void has stepped the feature documentary as like kind of the new indie film because people crave a level of reality. Um, and I also think people want to see that in television as well. So there's just... You know, when I started making films, you know, with Brothers Keeper at, at that time, if you didn't sell your documentary to HBO or PBS, uh, basically you weren't selling your documentary. Today, there's just amazing opportunity uh, in the space. I mean, what comes along with that, of course, is it's never been more popular uh, a field to go into what was once considered like a boring, you know, profession making documentaries uh you know is so many people want to do it and so many people are doing it that you know it's also very competitive but if you have any kind of reputation in the in in the in the space you know it's it's never been easier to 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 get work that having been said i think the one downside is there's so much work being made um you know i have i have you know colleagues who I see a tweet or a post about something they've done, and I'm like, "Wow, I've n I didn't see it and didn't even hear of that." Um, so, in some ways, it's harder and it's harder to be noticed. It's harder to break through and really have an impact because there's just so much content out there. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's just an amazing time to create content because, you know, the, I think the whole future of viewing is obviously changing um you know cable television as we know it i think is threatened and the streaming world has really provided tremendous opportunity for people and 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 i think the next five years is going to be really interesting because there's just you know because the streaming platforms are going for a global audience um you know the growth for those entities is almost limitless. I mean, one of the most exciting experiences in terms of just reaching people that I've ever had was, you know, I made a documentary for Netflix uh, about Tony Robbins called I Am Not Your Guru, uh, uh, you know, a film that actually has a very positive vibe to it and is not my typical, you know, wallowing in the despair of others kind of project. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wanted to make that film because I had a great experience with Tony Robbins. I think he helped me tremendously. I wanted to sh I wanted to share that with people, despite a lot of people's cynicism about that. Um, I, I just wanted to share what what I felt I got out of a Tony Robbins event and to turn it into a film. It took me two years to convince Tony to do it. Um, and uh, I brought you know, I brought the project to Netflix. They loved the idea. Um, and I remember, you know, Netflix had just hit about 180 countries. I don't remember the exact number, but they had really hit kind of a critical mass of countries. 
And I was one of the first films that they decided to do the global release at once instead of platforming it to different territories at on a different pace. And I remember sitting, I was actually in Los Angeles. Uh, I live in New York. I was in Los Angeles to do the press tour for the film. And, you know, I was settling, you know, I knew the film was dropping on July 15th, 2016 was the date, uh, you know, that the film was going to be made available around the world. And they had done all their algorithms to reach people with the, who they thought would like the film. And, um, I knew that there was a lot of social media anticipation about the film and people were doing viewing parties and all that, but you know, they, they created this hashtag. I am not your guru for the movie. And I sat on my porch or my balcony of my hotel room and at like the appointed hour, I forgot it was 9 p.m. Pacific time, the film became available. And I literally watched my phone blow up because that every time that hashtag, I am not your guru, uh, was tagged, uh, it showed up on my phone. And I watched this film simultaneously being cheered and available to, you know, people all, I mean, Vietnam, Colombia. Melbourne, New York City, there were people all over the world talking about the film at that time in viewing parties. And, uh, you know, I, we started off with Brothers Keeper, where even though the film did very well at Sundance, uh, nobody wanted to release it. So Bruce Sanofsky and I decided to theatrically self-distribute that film back in 92, which was a very different time. And we had six release prints of the movie on celluloid and we'd schlep our prints around from city to city. And if four or 500 people saw our movie in a weekend, we thought we were like, you know, in the catbird seat thinking, my goodness, how great is this? But here I was watching, you know, literally millions of people watch the film all at once. You know, when we started off doing this, where we were on, you know, documentary making was on the extreme periphery of the entertainment business and if you were lucky, your film could possibly make it into a theater. Um, if I could have looked into the future and knew that I could make a documentary, put it on Netflix and have millions of people see it around the world and comment on it and actually be reached again, like with Tony Robbins. I mean, I can't tell you over the next month or so and still to this day, you know, people reach out to me and said, you know, I was diagnosed with cancer and that movie really helped me get through it, you know. My wife and I were going through a hard time and, and thinking about a divorce, but that movie really helped us work through our problems. Um, you know, hearing that not once or twice, but, you know, thousands of times just is amazing. And so I think, you know, technology has, you know, is such that I think documentarians can really have a voice and reach people. Um, it's harder and harder because there's so much product, you know, that I admit that's an issue. And it's nice to not be ghettoized in, on the extreme periphery of the business anymore, you know. Um, and the fact that they're doing well in theatrical in, in the theatrical realm should be a, a sign to Hollywood that their approach of gambling everything on a two hundred million dollar movie that works globally, so that you reduce culture to the lowest common denominator, um, may not be like like. I mean, who am I to tell them how to do their business? But you know. Films, you know, the great golden period for me of American cinema was the 70s. I mean, auteur-driven, amazing, small movies that were amazing. And then there was this resurgence of indie films in the 90s. And uh, those films are, are really challenging. For whatever reason, it costs 15 to $20 million in P&A to release even a small 3 or $4 million movie. Um, and so the economics, for whatever reason, don't favor the small movie. And so now giant movies are being made uh, and they only need one out of six to succeed and they make their numbers. And I think that's a shame for uh, the quality of storytelling that's being done. You know, look, Black Panther, Black Panther was a great film, I thought, and it really took the genre to the next level. But I think Hollywood is generally concerned about a certain kind of movie and interestingly, I think the documentary really has stepped into the void and why you saw RBG and Three Identical Twins and Morgan Neville's film about Mr. Rogers, which I loved, you know, people are craving that kind of story. And I mean, the fact that 
uh, Mr. Rogers, I think, grossed like 20 million at the box office is incredible. Uh, in the old days, a three or four million dollar Miramax film that grossed 20 million dollars would be considered a big success. You know, today films cost a lot to release and market and they have to do major numbers. And so they gravitate to these films that can work all around the world. And I think that's missing out on a whole crop of storytelling that taps into the human condition, which is what is the very essence of what a documentary is. So I think that's that that is my very long winded way of explaining what I think is going on. Thanks so much, Joe. I really, really appreciate you spending an hour of your time with me and, and speaking uh, sure. about all this stuff. I uh, end all of my conversations on an up. Uh, we'll try and end it on an up. I've been trying to figure out a way to reframe this, this question, but um, I haven't quite got there yet. Anyway, the question is, uh, what makes you silly? Uh, I laugh with my kids, you know. My kids always ground me and remind me why I want to pursue the best in life uh, and my kids and me silly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Joe. Cool. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yay!